0: Faith Matters as you are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a programme devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this programme is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, Channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA online one, Faith Matters, the name of the programme, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on the Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that it's my pleasure to welcome back three regular panellists and three esteemed scholars of the Amli Muslim community to Faith Matters. Asalam alaykum, gentlemen.
1: Wa alaykum. As-salamu alaykum.
0: In terms of a very brief introduction to my immediate right of course is uh, respected Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib who's president of the Khazar board of jurisprudence here in the UK to his right of course is Maulana Azhar Hanif Sahib who is uh, senior missionary in the US and also the vice president of the Amdi Muslim community in the United States and to his right is and I'm Sure, again, a man who needs no introductions is of course Molana Abdul Ghani Jangir Khan Sahib, who's a senior missionary here in the UK and head of the French desk. Welcome to Faith Matters, gentlemen. Um, mashallah, they say we have received many a question and mashallah is indeed our first question, which comes from Nurlan Siddiqui. And um, it's a quick question that's been put, is that we often say the words mashallah with its literal meaning, Allah willed it. So why, what's the reason for using it only for good things? Azhar Sahib. Uh,
2: This (coughs) expression among so many others that we learn such as uh, Alhamdulillah, Habadullah, these expressions show our consciousness of of the realities that everything is coming and proceeding from God's hand Mm -hmm. and from His grace. And the person who goes through life with this consciousness and sense is expressing and everything they see in life that that understanding and that's that's really uh, the purpose behind it and other than that you would get into the position where someone's own merits Mm -hmm. or own abilities or capacities led to a positive outcome so the expression mashallah what Allah willed is talking about divine system and decree which allows us to benefit and the Qur'an says that all good comes from Allah And using this system we should always prosper and benefit So when we do, we acknowledge that And if we don't do it, if we don't acknowledge that, we're saying the opposite In the Qur'an, in Surah Al-Qaf, there's a very interesting parable given of, of, of a person Who has this beautiful garden given to him, and you know, it's, it's productive And he comes out one day boastfully saying, you know, this is all by my doing And you know, I'm, I'll, it'll always increase for me and then the Quran kind of sh- gives us this message of mashallah and uses the very words mashallah. In verse number uh, 40, a friend of this person in the parable is, is saying, well, you shouldn't have said like this. So he says, and when you went out into your garden, قلت, you should have said mashallah, you should have said mashallah, that what happened was Allah's will. What, La uh, And there's no strength or power in this life that, except that comes from God Almighty. Mm-hmm. So the Quran itself is, is using the same expression that if you're having anything in life that's beneficial, keep in mind that you should express this as a, a gift from God. Otherwise, the verse before it says, that uh, uh, it says, I believe in Allah, La ushriq bi rabbi ahada. And I put no one as a partner to my Lord. Mm-hmm. So, by doing less than this, is making some kind of association of God's power and God's grace with others. So, it's truly a spiritual concept. It's truly an expression beyond just a customary you know, uh, saying or something. It's the, the deeper sense of, of life, a deeper consciousness of the existence of God. And always acknowledging that, in you know, masha'Allah, and if something else is going to happen, insha'Allah. You know, the Qur'an says, don't plan to do anything unless you say insha'Allah, that it will only happen by God's will and grace and his, the power that comes from Him. And uh, this leads to a person advancing now spiritually. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is the whole reason. And, and I think Nur Ain is maybe taking it as just as a little, some kind of customary or, uh, you know, traditional expression. That, that we just banter about it, it has no really meaning, so can't we just, you know, drop it? And if people are saying that way, then of course, they're not, they're not using it with a sense. But if you use it with a deep sense of well, what's just happened, it causes you to get closer to a Creator, and then He comes closer to you, as was mentioned in past programs. And you show your gratitude to Allah, then He will increase for you. You show ingratitude to Allah, then He tends to cause things to decrease for you.
0: Jazakumullah. <inaudible> Azhar Sahib, and my thanks also to Noorlin Siddiqui. So it's almost, you know, the mashallah is the quality within, mm. and that's only come about because of Allah's uh, infinite blessings. Um, we'll move forward to our next question, which comes from Rafiq Ahmed Sahib <coughs> from Germany. Young Sahib, this is a sort of, it's an interesting question and I, uh, about things which come into existence, as Rafiq Sahib writes, can they come into existence out of nothing? And equally, the other side of the coin, I suppose, is can something which exists be sent into non-existence?
3: Well, we all came out of non-existence into existence, didn't we? I mean, even modern science acquiesces to the fact that um, the Big Bang happened. And prior to the Big Bang, there wasn't any any matter at all. Matter suddenly sprung into existence. And uh, science also informs us of a big crunch, which is going to happen when the universe stops expanding and starts Mm -hmm. you know contracting contracting, exactly Mm -hmm. Um, and then it will go back into nothingness again and then it will spring back to life again this is the prediction made by science and it is one which is upheld by the Holy Quran as Allah says that uh, there will be a day when the heavens and the earth meaning the the whole universe as such will be rolled up as a you know a scroll rolled up by a scribe Mm -hmm. and then Allah says and then we shall repeat the creation all over again, a promise which is binding upon us and when I say us of course I'm using the royal plural yes. uh, It doesn't mean that there's a plurality in the person of God. It's just a, a form of respect that he uses for himself um, So therefore this is something which is not at all, you know um, How would I say contrary to to modern science science upholds it. Mm-hmm. It's also in the Quran So this, I don't see wh- where the problem should be coming. Of course, it's, it's a difficult concept, concept to, to grasp how can there be nothingness? The, we can only fathom things that exist. How can we fathom non-existence? Mm. But we do know that it, 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 was, it, it, it didn't happen, mm. but it was a state, we could say, uh, the non-existence, which, which, which uh, you know, preceded existence and it will come again.
0: So it's like... Uh, just on this as well, we... You know, there's certain things, Zhang uh, rightly pointed out to science and the explanation science seeks to give behind the creation of the universe and again, the end of the universe as we know it. Yet, we're often told human mind is limited to what it knows today. Mm-hmm. And 10 years forward, 20 years forward, mm-hmm. you know, who, who knew the internet would exist exactly. 30 years ago? Exactly. And the concept that, this, that everyone now relies on, that this mm-hmm. kind of electronic communication 100 years ago, satellites, you know, in the concept and what they bring where you can beam across live pictures of events almost as they happen. Mm -hmm. Yet, this was beyond, if you like, human parameters of understanding at a Mm -hmm. given time in history. Surely in the future, again, some of the, which we believe to be non-existent or perhaps not understood, is probably the accurate way, will come into existence because they're understood, not because they don't exist.
2: Mm You know the Quran begins with an expression that helps us as believers to put everything in proper sp- perspective and it says that you have to believe bil Ghaib and those things which are inaccessible to the normal senses so to speak such as the existence of angels, the existence of uh, the, the creation of heaven and earth because you're talking about the, the being himself, God Almighty, Allah Uh, having uh, a need to believe in him though it's difficult for our our faculties Mm -hmm. to experience this being Mm -hmm. through the normal means that you're talking about scientific means and uh, empirical observation etc yet you must believe in it and and as you said rightly over the course of time the facts become more and more apparent we didn't know fourteen centuries ago about this big bang theory or this big crunch theory but the quran speaks about it in a term that allowed the man to evolve into this understanding he had to, he had to evolve his, his thinking through experience mm-hmm. so with time it may not be so in, incredulous that uh, god can create from nothing as we gain a better understanding even of life itself and, and we see this in philosophy of teachings of islam how the prophet said islam spoke about fire you know fire being latent inside certain things and, and that fire being latent in the wood, for instance, it, it's coming from basically nothing. Fire didn't exist prior to the, the, the kind of the, the movement of certain molecules to produce the heat. and then all of a sudden you have this thing called fire. So fire was latent within it, but it wasn't existing prior to this creation of something, uh, movement of, of these molecules and producing these things. So there's so many things in life that would have been shocking, to the primitive people at the time, it's, and they, so when they see fire, they say, oh, it's magic. They didn't say it's a miracle. They said, magic, this is, this is strange. It's a, ph- a phenomenon we have experienced before. And, and that's how we're beginning to analyze the, the world at large, that there are so many things beyond our knowledge base. But that shouldn't mean it's beyond our capacity to reason it's possible. It shouldn't go against our reason. And so what we're learning now by God's grace is the science of Qur'an and the word of Qur'an are going hand in hand. And more and more it's, it's reaffirming this truth and, and thus when God says I can create without the need of the things that you need to have at your disposal to create, you should accept this as my power, which is beyond human power, but it is a power that does exist. So in the end, he says, "Kuntum amwatan fahiyakum. You were nothing. You you were completely dead, lifeless. You didn't exist. Fahiyakum, and I gave you life. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Now we can see that, because even the scientists, when they take back creation, keep going back, back, back to the original point. What do they say? There had to be something prior to the first stage. We don't know what it was, but something had to initiate it." We say that something was the creator who initiated just like when you're gonna bake a cake you put all the greens together and then you bake that cake, you initiated. This was the beginning of nothing, of creation. The creator existed, then comes creation. So this issue to me boils down to this this point of uh, gaining a better understanding of God and his creation and accepting the fact that he can do what is beyond human comprehension and human ability and leaving it at that. Mm-hmm. I don't think we'll ever know how he can do it, but we should be able to accept that it's, it's a possibility that he, he did it and he'll keep doing it, as he'll give us life again, which is just as remarkable as the first time, mm-hmm. he says. Mm-hmm. Just as remarkable.
0: Exactly. Just as a final point on this, uh, Dr. Saab. The point also, as you know, sort of illustrated, is is the mindset of man, where they cross over from physical existence to spiritual existence, and the, those who don't have faith, for example, that when they cannot put the empirical evidence base there, or they cannot justify through the knowledge base which exists currently, then that issue that may exist in as much as someone's life, when it expires, they move on. We, you know, The spirit is still kept in some, even though the physical body, that leap of faith, there's no better way for it where you go from the physical to the spiritual world is quite a challenge for some, if not many.
1: I I mean, Allah talks about the unseen, Mm -hmm. and that is both for the believers and for the non-believers that there are things which are unseen, and as as Azhar has explained, that over the centuries our understanding of those entities have become more clear as man has advanced in those states. But as far as belief is concerned, there is always going to be an element of unbe- uh, unseen, or belief in the unseen. And when we transcend from that physical to the spiritual state, then that understanding has to be of the same nature as as, as that is. So there is, uh, the, as, as both have, have explained, of existence of life, and the creation of life, and the life pattern of life, that science is actually now proving what the Holy Quran taught us 1400 years ago. So as far as the future life is concerned, then as our understanding progresses and science progresses, perhaps there will be further evidence of, of that element of when that, uh, when that transition takes place. So that is for man, believer or non-believer, to be able to understand more fully in that respect. Gentlemen,
0: vast subject, I'm sure you'll agree, but Jazakumullah for your very comprehensive and clear responses as ever and my thanks also to um, Rafiq Amitsar from Germany for your question. Our next question comes from Shiraz Saab in the UK and Azhar Saab he's asking what is the purpose of the Satur covering? Is there a special type of covering of which Islam has prescribed? And there's a second question which I think is related but slightly different but taking that first question from Shiraz Saab. What's the meaning perhaps if you could just start Uh, with that the meaning behind this kind of
2: covering? The the first concept is the 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 need to cover and what is the covering and this concept doesn't begin with Islam at all with the Holy Prophet Muhammad (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in fact we've seen as societies in general have developed codes of civil conduct Mm -hmm. Uh, going back into the Quran the time of Adam is mentioned that there were four basic things he had to ensure to create this kind of civil order one of those things was covering. Everyone should have proper covering. And this was mainly meant to protect them from the elements. And, and, and it, this, this is a right that all should have. But it's also not just protecting from the elements. It's also to protect society from the, the, the potential uh, imbalances that can be created, which separate us from the animal kingdom. Otherwise, you, you, you look at it, human beings and animals, you know the needs are the same. The the, the, the life can be the same. A certain amount of years you're here, you die. That's it. Mm-hmm. So why is it that the human being has to cover, and the animal is allowed to roam freely without any covering? It is this again, spiritual consciousness, that we are here on earth for purpose, and that purpose is to be the image, the servant of our Creator, and to reflect the best human qualities as possible and to live a moral order. And for this, now you have to create a sense of how how to achieve moral order. Between the sexes, man and woman, if you don't have some barriers that come between, Mm -hmm. these, as as they always say, the the live wires will always cause short circuit in system. And it's natural, there's nothing -hmm. nothing implied that uh, a man shouldn't be attracted to a woman and vice versa. It's natural, it's the way it was supposed to be so that we will continue to procreate and and, and produce the next generation. But if you don't put some limits into that, that natural attraction, mainly which a man will have uh, toward, in this case, the, the male toward the female. In some species, it's the female not being, the, the, they are attracted toward the male. But in this case, if we don't put these things in place, where particularly parts of the body which need to be covered to protect, uh, protect from that, it will lead to rampant uh, uh, kind of relations being created in society without any checks and balances. And not only in, in that sense, but for the next creation. Whose child is it? You know, mm-hmm. wh- who is the mother? Who is the father? You know, and then, then the diseases we see when these things haven't been controlled, what, what's been created? You know, the transmission of these sexual diseases and all these things. So it, it really speaks about this. The issue of purity, chastity, and the controlling of a, a social order. Mm-hmm. This is the basis of And now Islam is saying, what is that? For a man, it's from the waist down to the, the, the knees, basically. You know, this is the area where it, everything else can be open, but this part should be covered because you, you're protecting the organs of progeneration, mm-hmm. and these can also be the organs that create, uh, can be stimulated or can be stimulate, stimulants. You know, and the same for the woman. Now, from the the, the neck going down, and the arms to be covered, and the legs to be covered, all these things are sources of attraction. And uh, that's the basics of it. Uh, it it can be extended more than that. But this should be the basic sutta that everyone should try to observe. I, I would just in the end add that I know nowadays there's a strong movement in different parts of the world that we should be above this, you know. We should be higher in our thinking toward one another and, and, and not react to sexual, uh, you know, stimulations and just want to uh, go for the attack. And then if you achieve this kind of uh, mental state then you can all walk free and, and natural and easy. And that's the natural state we were born in, and that's the natural state we should walk around in, and no one should object to it. But try that in societies and see how far it goes. Even being covered now, look at the increase over the course of time in the sexual attack and abuse upon women. I mean, completely out of control in this day. I don't know here in UK, but in USA, it it is rampant. The whole issue of how the women is, is being used solely as a sexual object, as young as you can imagine and even you know, it doesn't matter if they're married or unmarried, it's just completely, there's no bounds now. And this is a society that's protecting themselves somewhat. Remove all that and you can imagine how much further it will go. Mm-hmm. And this, I, I don't believe, can ever be a system that can be advocated by any religion, it hasn't been in the past, not by the Jewish order, the Christian order, the Hindu order, you, you name it. They've all talked about the need to maintain this covering and this chastity so that society is balanced. And in, in the beginning this is what Islam talks about. So I discussed this on occasions with young ladies and I've asked them this you know we're in a room now you know maybe a classroom I said we're in a room now suppose I asked all of you to take your clothes off right here in the room how would you feel? Would it be something you felt naturally Inclined to do or disinclined to do. And all of them, without question, would say, I'm disinclined to do that. It's just a natural sense of wanting to maintain a covering over certain parts of the body. Now, you ask the same question to the men, they all raise their, yes, we're all in favor of that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so they understand clearly what's going on here, and I think uh, this issue shouldn't be too confusing.
0: Zakmullah, as very clear on that. And Dr. Saab, I mean, as has been very clear. And, what he said, and um, in part he's answered uh, Shirazab's second question is, why should we cover, some ask, why should we cover our bodies in this age? But this whole thing about the argument, the moral argument, as it's called, about societal norms and, you know, what's morally justified or appropriate or acceptable in one society is perceived as either being backward in another or overly progressive or downright, you know, unacceptable. In, in others and I think this whole concept varies from culture to culture at times from country to country mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. but there is a real challenge for, I mean a very good example that uh, Azhar gave but in trying to address this in a way which says this isn't about it's about protection it's about creating a sound moral society where standards and respect and it's as much not about prohibiting you but about protecting you
1: Absolutely. I mean, Islam, we have recognized, is, is the religion of balance and the religion of moderation. Mm-hmm. So it does not allow us to go to extremes in that nature and as, uh, in, in this nature as well. But one of the things that we always should bear in mind when we are talking about coverings and uh, about segregation is the guidance of the Holy Quran in which we are told that we should, both for men and women. Mm-hmm. So this is the other important aspect that we should always realize that these injunctions are not there only for women mm-hmm. as some some people would say but the first thing is Allah commands men and women to restrain their looks and to guard their senses so that is the first and primary uh, step that one must always have indeed it, the
0: instruction is for men first it's,
1: absolutely yeah, and, so it, uh, men are required to do that first and then women are also okay. given that injunction and to guard their private parts, as Azhar has said. And what is, as Azhar has alluded to, the fact that in this modern society in US, and we are no different, far, we are not far behind you in many ways, we may be ahead of you in that respect, but these are worrying aspects of society and what is happening in the society at large. When we look at nakedness, the opposite to covering up, and we look at the studies and the very recent studies that uh, were published only only last week is the number of or the children who are accessing pornographic material on the internet. And th- those figures are really alarming children as young as four, many children under the age of eight, many children under the age of ten. So this is what the dangers are of nakedness in society and we see how the society then degrades and breaks down and we have all those problems which are linked with this type of activity in society so in order to guard against that Islam has given us the midline and the covering that Azra Saif has talked about are not extreme in any nature mm-hmm. if we find them extreme in some parts of the Muslim world then they are go- going beyond the limit that Islam has prescribed these limits that we have talked about is is the covering so that is what Islam is, is recommending. That is what the society at large needs to take on board. And as a said, it is not only Islam. It is the religions before Islam which, which also preached exactly the same things. And the believers of those faiths have now gone away from those teachings. So this is how society can be brought back into a society where there is harmony and peace and there are not those issues that are being created that we find at the moment.
0: Mr just very briefly, you touched on it. I think society even from a Western perspective is now recognizing that there's these protections needed you talked about the study recently for mm-hmm. example exploitative magazines you know with provocative covers those are being looked at now to say that these add to and that both from a protection mm-hmm. from and, for and, women and the
2: fashion, the fashions yeah. for especially the girls you mm-hmm. know the fashions that are promoted through these images of the, the so-called popular Hollywood stars have been more and more inclined for nakedness and I mean I, I, I can't imagine that my daughter would follow some of these, these Hollywood stars in the way they dress. And it gets so difficult to send your daughters into society to find proper clothing in, off the shelves in these stores because they're all talking about revealing, 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 mm-hmm. and it's becoming glorified as if this is the way to attract the man. Mm-hmm. What they don't realize is you are attracting the man, but in the process, you're losing a partner because a man will never respect a woman who presents herself like this. And this is the as a psychological consequence which Dr. Sab was talking about. It's been sh- shown that a man will lose the respect for that woman who is revealing too much of her beauty. And as opposed to the one who conceals herself, she gains the respect. And this is what women demand. So it's, it's really quite uh, uh, startling mm-hmm. that they don't champion this idea that, uh, yes, they should be covering. Uh, but as Dr. Sub said, we go too far, unfortunately, in the Muslim world. And putting our woman from head to toe in a complete you know, dark suit as if she has no need to have anything visible. And that, that is... Also
0: according to mm-hmm.
1: Islam. other yeah. has talked about Hollywood, may I
2: talk about Bollywood as, as well?
1: <laughs> <laughs> because... Uh, the, There's a the bit sa- of cultural balance there, <laughs> eh? yes. By the same me. trends mm-hmm. of revealing we find in Bollywood and what we see, and why I want to bring that in is because Hazrat Masih Muhammad, the Promised Messiah, Salaam, for, uh, 12, uh, 100 years ago, 12, uh, 125 years ago, mm-hmm. warned the Indian society mm-hmm. not to go down this, this route and uh, he was very specific in that and he said that these are alarming things that you will be going down mm-hmm. and if you go down this slippery slope mm-hmm. then there will be all sorts of problems mm-hmm. and we have seen that how true his words were and the problems that also we find in the subcontinent as well. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen,
0: again a vast subject but um, I believe you, as ever you've dealt with it very comprehensively and my thanks also to uh, Shiraz for your question. Our next question comes from Talat Rahman Sab in, uh, in Germany. Um, Jahangir Sab, the question uh, we have here is about, you know, within Islam, we're told to respect and indeed revere and hold with great respect the all the holy books of, of different faiths. Yet also, as has been shown, that over time, many of these books have been translated so, And subsequently interpreted slightly differently so the concept of is this the original text no longer perhaps exists in the context with the notable exception of the Holy Quran and our question is really asking is why does Islam therefore require us to have belief in such books
3: well Islam actually requires us to have belief in the divine portions of those books if those books have been distorted in some ways we are not upholding those distorted portions but because there are portions of it which did come from God those are the things which are part of God's signs and um, in a previous program we were talking about the the need to respect Allah's signs mm-hmm. and that that is p- a part of righteousness mm-hmm. and so therefore we shall uh, show respect and it's one of the, the the great qualities of Islam and actually the unique qualities of Islam in that it requires its believers to actually uh, not only believe in the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu <laughs> Alaihi Wasallam but to believe in all the messengers sent by God to any people anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. whoever came from God, we have to believe in them. Mm-hmm. And rejecting one is like rejecting all of them. So, this is very, very much part of our faith. But to say that we respect a book which, in its original form, was pure and which did come from God, whereas now it is adulterated or it's been changed to a large degree, that does not mean that we are now going to follow the teachings in those books as they stand today. We're not required to do that. But we have to show respect to, the, to them as they have a holy beginning. Mm-hmm. For example, when the Kaaba was filled with idols, mm-hmm. it wasn't fit for use for the, you know by people of a monotheistic faith. But that didn't mean that it wasn't part of the signs of God. And once the idols had been removed from there, it regained its uh, initial purity and holiness. Mm-hmm. So we were respecting it before, we had to respect, respect it after. So, if, for example, these books, are, all those portions are ex- expunged from it, from any of the books, you know, we'd still respect the book no more than we would even if it contains all these other things. It's very important. But also, on, uh, on another note, in this day and age when every act, every deed is televised, is seen by people around the globe, it becomes all the more important to show that we do have sincere respect for the books of the other peoples. We can of course have very friendly debates and uh, you know discor- discussions with different people on the, the, some of the nature of some of the things which they have in the books which have crept in later on, you know, over the years. But uh, we have to show that we, sh- that we have respect. I know that in many Ahmadi homes there are copies of uh, the Bible. In some Ahmadi homes, we even have copies of the Bhagavad Gita and other books. And these books are always treated with great respect mm-hmm. and great reverence. This is how it has to be. Mm-hmm. Then everyone can see that, you know, that these people really do, you know, they put their, their, uh, their money where their mouth is, you know, so that they really do, you know, uphold these values in the physical as well, not just in the theory, you know, in the practice too.
0: Ilaikum yeah. it's true to say that the Muslim community specifically holds true that every Religion at its inception emanates from the same being, which is God Almighty and was, was the truth. Absolutely. And that's what we've seen. Jazakallah, Jahangir Saab. And my thanks also to Talat uh, Rahman for the question. Our next question comes from Usman uh, Mahmood from here in the UK, in a way building on uh, what Jahangir Saab just said about Mecca and idol worship, etc., cetera. Um, and Usman's asking that it relates to Mecca specifically in Hajj. And he says, as I've understood it, no one is forbidden from entering Mecca, according to Islam. Yet he then says, and he's quoting Surah 9, verse 29, that it's used by Muslims, some Muslims, to support their claim that non-Muslims are forbidden from entering Mecca. Azhar Hanif Saab, I mean, this is a very contentious issue for many that, um, you know, the actual mosque, the actual Kaaba, the area of worship or whatever, is it or is it not open to people of other faiths mm-hmm.
2: the quran mentions that this house is wadiyal nas. it is one that was built for all mankind and this is not just for muslimin or muslim or whatever you know is this just, just for muslims mm-hmm. so it's very specific about Kaaba being a house of god for all mankind but then there are certain conditions <laughs> Excuse me. That are attached to this special holy house. That that is falls in this verse. I'd have to just quickly try to flip and, and, and get to it. Um, uh, uh, mashallah. Uh, the, the question here is not non-Muslims per, per se, as he's mentioned. Uh, it's it's specifically in these verses referring to those who are mushrik, the mushrikun, those who are the idol idol worshippers, as Jahangir Sahib said in his last answer, that the position prior to the advent of Holy Prophet Muhammad was was the Kaaba, which had been built a number of times by uh, Adam, by Ibrahim, and then again uh, kind of restructured during the days of the Holy Prophet Muhammad was a house built for all mankind for the worship of one God. Mm Yet over the course of centuries, slowly but surely, the people moved toward idolatry. And the idolatry thus began to create a group who were impure in their worship for the one God. And and thus, this sense of uh, who should be allowed in that that, uh, precinct, which has been built and sanctified for the worship of one God, are those who want to go and worship the one God, no matter who they may be. For so the Ahli Kitab, those who are the worshipers of one God, Christians, Jews, etc., or any other monotheistic religion, in fact, what Jahangir is saying to us, every religion, every single religion at the outset was a monotheistic religion, believing in one God and, and, and preaching the, the, the truth on this, 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 this faith. And thus, every religion in its outset sh- should have been attached as the group of mankind to this house of God. And if they were to come to the house of God as that original teaching of worship of one God, freely they could come but the idolaters who were tooth and nail opposing the messenger when he first preached uh, in in Mecca Mm -hmm. and tooth and nail opposing him when he finally had to migrate and go to Medina they're now being warned in this verse if you have continued in this policy of opposition to the Holy Prophet and his establishing of this uh, sanctity once again for the worship of one God then know that you will be opposed tooth and nail as you have been opposing this prophet Mm -hmm. and this this faith and this house tooth and nail, and you'll be driven away. Mm-hmm. And you have no right to enter this place for worship because it's been consigned from day one for the worship of one God. And you know, it, it's, it's true for any institution, any place in this world, that there are restrictions, there are regulations for you to go and use that facility and, and be part of that. You enter a restaurant, they have a dress code. If you're not dressed properly, they'll say, please leave the premises. You have failed to meet some criteria. If I go to the House of of, of Commons and Lords, again, you expect me to observe a certain decorum Mm -hmm. in dress and manner and everything, and if I'm against that, if I'm coming here as the Taliban who wants to destroy you, you'll say, arrest them at the door and throw them out. So every group understands this quality, and and in Islam and faith, there's no difference. This place was set for a specific reason, and that's being protected, so that it will maintain pure and pristine in its, its purpose and its its uh, goals for the people who come. Unfortunately, Muslims had terribly misunderstood these, these verses and have, uh, misapplied them, again, to include every person who's non-Muslim. And if they do this, then how did God say, this is it's a house built for mankind. How did, how did that, uh, he's allowing the ahli kitab to come and worship here? And as it was mentioned again in our earlier program, how did the Holy Prophet Muhammad himself so allow the Christians to come pray in his own mosque? So there's no banning of these things, but in the contemporary world's understanding of this verse and in the restrictions they have put on the Kaaba. Otherwise um, our past khalifa, especially the fourth he spoke about this that one day if God willing we again are able to influence the people in Saudi Arabia in this house and this will okay, it yeah. will be opened up okay. once again to those who want to come and worship in the house no restriction but we have to wait for that day because now the different different view uh, prevails
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that and my thanks also to a Saab for that question um, Dr. Saib, he's got a second question, again, staying with Surah 9, but verse 29 he's quoting here, which he says is often used by non-Muslims to support their, and it is an erroneous claim, that Islam somehow promotes aggression and violence. Um, His question relates to what is the exact meaning of that particular verse, and how have they come to this kind of interpretation?
1: Perhaps I could read out verse 29 so that we are aware of what the question is about. I'll just read the English translation. Uh, fight those from among the people of the book who believe not in Allah, nor in the last day, nor hold as unlawful what Allah and His Messenger have declared to be, lo- uh, to be unlawful, nor follow the true religion until they pay the tax, considering it a favour, and acknowledge their subjection. Now this relates, of course, to the early history of Islam, and as Azhar Hanif Sahib has also alluded to that fact, that the Holy Prophet both in Mecca and Medina was bitterly opposed and was bitterly persecuted. His opponents uh, uh, including himself were bitterly opposed and driven out of of their homes. Mm -hmm. So he was not only opposed by the idol worshippers, he was also opposed by believers of other faiths who resided both in Medina and Mecca Mm -hmm. and these were people of the book, they were Christians, they were Jews, they were the Sabians, and this was a state of war Mm -hmm. so that the Muslims I mean they tried their best to exterminate the body of Muslims and to kill the Holy Prophet Mm -hmm. so this was the state of affairs that they encountered at that time Mm -hmm. and this is a verse which relates to that that you have to fight them meaning that Muslims were given permission to fight defensive wars in order to protect themselves and this is a normal state of affairs of any war that a man is permitted to protect his, himself and his property and this relates to that that the muslims were able to protect themselves and fight against those people who believed in the book but did not believe in the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and in, in fact had gone away from mm. their own faith and were although labeled as people of the book were perhaps not following the teachings that were contained in their book either because had they been true followers of the book that they had been received there were prophecies in their books relating to the coming of a great Prophet the Holy Prophet <laughs> <laughs> and they would have become Muslim so this is a state of aggression that the Muslims were under and they were permitted to actually fight so it's those. quite a sort of specific context
0: in which that verse was revealed in terms of as you said defensive wars and of course there's gr- rules governing the proportionality elements of such defensive, waging such defensive wars, if yeah. indeed permissible?
1: Muslims are only in, 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 in essence to defend themselves, so defensive wars, permission was granted for specific factors and limitations were imposed and these limitations were imposed by the Holy Prophet Sallallahu <laughs> Alaihi S- Wasallam S- and whenever he used to send his armies out, he was very particular about that there must not be killing of children and women and priests and their buildings. So there were very strict limits and that would mean that they were able to protect themselves without going into a rampage in other parts of the country.
0: JazakAllah, gentlemen, for that. My thanks also. Again, it's one of those subjects I'm sure we can discuss for, uh, for the length of the program. Well, my thanks also to Usman and Mutsaab for your question. Our next question comes from Uzma Wahid in the United States. Assalamualaikum, and thank you for your question. Um, Jahangir Saab, Usman's asking, and she asks the question specifically about parents. And um, uh, as most people know, Islam, indeed all faiths, have great reverence for the position of parents. And within Islam, it stresses the position that, um, for example, he- heaven is under the feet of mothers. And Usman's suggesting in her question that when the mother is alive, she protects her children. Or supplication through supplication for their protection. Her question relates more to when sadly someone's mother passes away is that protective umbrella no longer available?
3: You see, prayers in their effects could last for thousands of years. We've seen the prayers of certain prophets who came before, the prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, springs to mind. Who had uh, prayed well in advance of the coming of the Prophet Muhammad mm-hmm. for Allah to grant mm-hmm. such a Prophet among his own progeny, who would be a source of benefit to the, to in the entire mankind, not just to his own descendants. Mm-hmm. And that prayer was fulfilled several thousands of years later. So, prayers can, you know, the effects of, uh, of them anyway, can last for a very long time after one's passing away. Similarly, we've, uh, we've seen in the case of the, the Imam Mahdi salam, the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community. When he passed away as well, he hadn't left much for his children at all in terms of property or wealth or anything like that. But his wife gathered all her children around her and told them that don't be distressed by the fact that your father has left not, you know, much in terms of, of worldly wealth for you. He has left you the treasures of his prayers and Those will be of great benefit to you forever if you st- hold it, hold fast to to the, his teachings So therefore these prayers are of great effect now if a mother Was it, was a pious mother and she was always praying for her children? She would of course be praying for their future as well She wouldn't only be praying praying for their immediate needs mm-hmm. and she would mm-hmm. be thinking well ahead of not only her own children But their children and the children of their children, etc, etc mm-hmm. so I don't think a person should be, you know, upset too much at the passing away, of, of course it's a, it's a very difficult thing to lose one's mother or one's father, etc., but um, one should also remember that they, if they had prayed for, for their descendants, then those prayers, the effects of them, would last for a very, very long time indeed. And I know there are people, of course, and we should all do this, pray for our descendants, they pray for their descendants till the end of time. So those prayers would last then for a very long time, as long as Allah would, would wish them to last. Mm-hmm. So uh, Allah is, is very kind and very benign in these matters. And I think Allah would uh, allow a, a mother's prayers, which, are, which usually are not un, don't go unheard, uh, to last you know well into the, the coming generation. Yes, exactly, yes. There is an
2: example also in Quran of the mother of Hazrat Maryam mm-hmm. and the prayer she offered to have a certain son who would be the, uh, the heir and when the child Maryam was born she was a bit concerned but Allah told her that don't be worried this child, this daughter is more than you think and so her prayer was answered in the next generation at the birth of Hazrat Isa a.s. Prophet Jesus so we see that that grandmother of Jesus began that prayer so to speak that produced him two generations later and then he went on to become (coughs) the founder of this uh, you know new faith of christianity and uh, look at how many people have followed this faith and and blessed through the prayers of this first mother so uh, you know the men we mentioned are important but even there are examples of women mothers whose prayers we see affect you for generations upon generations to come and yet all we lose in this life is their the companionship you know the, the 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 near proximity of being with them and going to them and there's no you know replacing that that's that's always going to be missed in life but the prayers go on there's no there's no uh, as we, if we're joking you know expiration date to a prayer it, it, <laughs> it, it, it keeps going on by last grace
0: and with that we come to the end of today's program I would like to thank our panelists and Sages Akumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to
1: do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.